Hello, fellow hopeful romantics. It's Ashley with a few quick announcements. First off, reminding you all to subscribe to Meet Cute on Apple Podcasts so you can listen to Meet Cute's library for only 99 cents a month. Each Monday, Meet Cute subscribers on Apple Podcasts will be able to listen to an exclusive new Meet Cute story. But of course, each month Meet Cute will still have a new season of rom-com stories for free on all podcast apps. Those episodes will be coming out on Tuesday and Thursday. And as for us, well, you'll still find us on all podcast apps for free every other Friday. Enjoy the show. I'll have what she's having. I love relationships. I love romantic comedies. I love love. We don't know what Cinderella looked like because she's not real. Yes, they freaking got it. Really earn that happily ever after at the end. Change the writing. It's not that hard. Hello, all you hopeful romantics, and welcome to What She's Having, presented by Meet Cute, where a glass of rosé isn't required, but it is certainly encouraged. Oh, especially today, where I am so excited and honored to present our guest. How do you present an icon? Okay, um... My guest today is a famous actress, producer, author, social activist, and best known for starring on the sitcom That Girl. Listen, this lady was breaking glass ceilings before we even knew they were up there. She's brilliant, she's bold, and she has a huge heart, which you can see through her work with St. Jude's, as well as through her own personal love story with Phil Donahue. Have you guessed her yet? You may know her as Rachel Green's mom on Friends or from her hit podcast, Double Date, which I'm obsessed with. My guest today is the most wonderful of wonderfuls, the woman that proves you should meet your heroes, Milo Thomas. Hello. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm just ecstatic. Oh, good. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It sounds fun. Oh, I hope so. You let me yeah. know after, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> this has been it's such a fun week for me, Marlo. I mean, going through your past work and listening to everything you're doing now and reading everything you're doing now, you seem to have a genuine passion for humans and a curiosity about empathy. <laughs> I'm so curious, what originally drew you to acting? You know, I grew up on movie sets watching my father work. And also seeing him on the nightclub stage, he was so happy. His eyes were all shining. It just looked like a wonderful place to be. And I got to understand the work of it. I think I knew at a very early age that this was really hard work. And it was creative. And it was a craft. And you had to figure out how to make each thing work in a script, in a nightclub act, whatever. I would listen to my father. He would play the tapes from his nightclub performance. And he would say to me, my nickname was Muggs. And he'd say, you see that Muggs? They don't like that. They, I'm going to put a song here. They're laughing too hard here. They won't be able to eat their dinner. He had such respect for the audience. And when I started working on, in that girl, I had that respect for the audience. I wanted the young women and the girls who watched that girl to, to feel a, you know, a real affinity with her. And I went out of my way to, to give them you know, the, the encouragement that through that girl, they would be encouraged. You did. You were literally that girl for all of us. I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, to me, going back and watching it and seeing that in the 1960s, you portrayed one of the first 
working single women on television. Did you realize how groundbreaking that was at the time? Or is it only with hindsight? No, no, we knew because it was hard to get it on. And I had I gave the book, The Feminine Mystique to the head of ABC Network and said, read this. This is where it's going. What did his face look like when you did that? That's amazing. Well, he, you know, he had asked to meet with me because I had done a pilot for ABC that did not sell. And Clairol had almost bought it just because they wanted me. They wanted a young woman to sell shampoo and stuff. And so they said, well, this show isn't good enough, but let's, let's get a show for her. So they called me in. And I said, all these shows that you've sent me, the girl is the wife of somebody or the daughter of somebody or the secretary of somebody. Have you ever thought of doing a show where the girl is the somebody? And I remember Edgar Sherrick, who was the head of ABC, said, well, would anybody watch a show like that? And so I took the feminine mystique out of my bag, which I brought along especially. And I said, please read this because this is where it's going. The girls of today don't want to be their mother. They, they're a different breed of female. And so he read it. And after he read it, I mean, I was, I was quite amazed that he read it. You know, I figured he'd just throw it in a pile of books. But he read it and he called me and he said, is this going to happen to my wife? You know, like, <laughs> oh my God. You know, I know. It's funny. That was the beginning of, of that girl. Well, I certainly hope you helped his wife and it did happen <laughs> for his wife in that <laughs> instance, but you weren't just the actress and that girl. You were also the producer. How did you make that happen? Well, it was my idea. He said, well, what, what do you want to play? What's the story? And I said, I'd like to play a girl like me who's graduated from college as I had, who didn't want to get married as I felt, whose mother and father desperately wanted her to marry the boyfriend from college and have a lot of babies. And I wanted to go to the big city and be an actress and find my own way. And, and he kept asking the same question. Would anybody watch a show like that? And anyway, he said, look, I'm going to bet on you. And so he let me make that show. So I hired the writers, Bill Persky and Sam Denoff, who were great. They had written some Dick Van Dyke shows and won an Emmy. They, and I used to play charades with them on Friday nights with a big group of, of kids. And so they said, yeah, they would do it. I called it Miss Independence because that's what my dad used to call me. Uh, but they called it That Girl, which was better, better title. Where did this incredible sense of self come from? especially at such a young age, you know, as we move into our, as we get older, it gets a little easier to have that sense of self. But in my twenties, I don't even know growing up when I did that I was as strong as you seem to have been. I don't know that I was strong as, as I, I just was, I knew what I wanted. That was it. And I, and, and the only way to get from A to L is through B, C, D, E. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just knew that I, here I was. I mean, I had a chance at the brass ring. I have a network and a sponsor. All I need is a show, right? So uh, I thought I'm not, you know, I'm going to hang on to this opportunity and and make it happen. I, I, and I think I wasn't afraid because I grew up in the industry and I knew it wasn't mysterious. You know, mm. a lot of times, especially girls who aren't taken to work, which is why we did take our daughters to work at the Ms. Foundation. A lot of girls look at the business world as something scary and mysterious. But once you've hung around it for a while, if your dad's a lawyer and you hang around a law firm or go to the courtroom or whatever, you start to see what it is. It's not that mysterious. And it's the same with, with film and TV. 
you work on a script, you try to find the right cast, you got to get a director, they build the sets. I mean, it's, it's kind of methodical, you know, so I kind of knew the ropes. So I knew, you know, what the steps were. And also, I, I think, you know, my father called me Miss Independence for a reason. I was a girl who really knew what I wanted and, and said so. But you must have been pretty willful if you are where you are today. Uh, yeah. You know what? I, I never knew any different. I grew up with such a strong female role model in my life. Your mom? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gail, who I think honestly has never been more proud of me than me sitting here with you today. Uh, that's nice. <laughs> Marlo, I actually got engaged this year after 10 years with a man at the age of 34 because I felt similar things to you. Um, I didn't necessarily think I'd want to get married. And I was so pleased when I learned that in that girl, you played a romantic lead who didn't necessarily, her happy ending wasn't necessarily a wedding. Well, the, the, the Clairol wanted a wedding because, you know, that would be big numbers. And the network wanted a wedding because we were going to quit. And uh, and I said, I can't have a wedding. I mean, I can't say to all these girls and young women who've been following the escapades of Anne Marie to say that the only happy ending is a wedding. I just can't do it. It would be a betrayal. Uh, so I can't do it. So the last show was Anne Marie taking Donald to a women's lib meeting. That was the last show, which made nobody happy but me. I was thrilled with it. A lot, but later, years later, Billy and Sam and everybody said, you know, it's good we didn't because you date a show. I mean, if, you, if there's a wedding, then you already know the end of the story. It was something I couldn't have done. I just couldn't. I think in romance and love, there's this misconception that a wedding's an ending. It's the end right. of the story. And right, right. the fact right. that you didn't play into that, I didn't realize that we had that model in 71 when it ended. Right. So I want to throw some names out to you. The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Murphy Brown, Sybil, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, HBO's Girls, Broad City. This is a long list. Gilmore <laughs> Girls, Lizzie McGuire, New Girl, Sex in the City, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. These are all shows led by women that I have seen credited in print as possibly not existing if it weren't for that girl and your personal legacy. Did you set out to carve a path that large? Well, I set out to break the barrier. Billy Persky, who created this, the script, the opening script and the, and the story of that girl, uh, said that, that that girl threw the hand grenade into the bunker and all these other shows came after. I mean, somebody had to be first. Those shows would not exist. Somebody had to be first and it was us. But I think one of the people you left out of there was Roseanne. And I think Roseanne was a very important part of the evolution of women in situation comedy. You know, Mary was kind of like that girl. You know, she did the same thing. She was a single girl working. Kate Nally was a big milestone. Kate Nally, were divorced women with children, single women. So that was big. I mean, I didn't even want to get married here. There were divorced women. Yeah. And then you have Cagney and Lacey, you know, two women cops, tough women. And and then Roseanne, who who yelled at her children and hated her kids. And, and she was like a Jackie Gleason of women, you know. And then uh, and then Murphy Brown, 
I mean, Murphy Brown was so flawed. She was an alcoholic. She had a baby out of wedlock. She screamed at her office. You know, I mean, it was just so interesting to see the evolution of that, you know, of those roles that were not possible. I mean, when I came on the air, there was Lucy and Donna Reed. There wasn't anything that looked like real life, even though those women were great. I mean, nobody's better than Lucy, but it wasn't real. I mean, you know, she she had to hide everything from Ricky. I was taking that way away from that. Were you conscious that that was the dynamic in I Love Lucy between Lucy and Ricky when you were watching it as a child? No, no. I don't think I realized that till I, till I was older, that in fact, she was so cowed by her husband. It, you know, when you're little, it's just, it's just funny. She's sneaking around kind of like you are, you know? Yeah. She was, a, she was sort of infantilized with her husband, which is the exact, you know, kind of marriage you would never want to have, that you have to manipulate your husband in some silly way. But that was the comedy of the time. And it was great. I mean, if you look at it today, you'll still laugh. She's hilarious. And Donna Reed with her apron and staying home and all that, you know, father knows best. The mom with the apron and the laundry basket. I mean, you know, really, when you think of it, there wasn't any woman for a young girl to identify with in terms of aspiring to be somebody. We already knew we could be mothers and wives. We have our own mother who's a wife, right? Right. We don't need another mother-wife role model. We needed that girl. We needed somebody to say, you could go to the big city. And they were very afraid of my coming to the big city on my own. They said that they didn't think the American public was ready for a girl without a family unit. And they wanted me to move in with my aunt in New York. And I said, no, she's a college graduate. She's not 16. I mean, it, it was a learning experience for them, a learning curve. And I don't think anybody was more shocked when that girl became a, a huge hit the very first night. The very first night, we just wiped out every other channel. They needed it. They saw that girl as a revolutionary figure, and I saw her as a fait accompli. I knew every home in America had a girl like that. You know, I was one of them, and that my friends, I mean, I had a lot of friends who were like me, you know, who were studying to be lawyers or doctors or whatever. And we were a different breed, that's for sure. We want to recognize ourselves because when we recognize ourselves, maybe we can learn something about ourselves we didn't know before. Right. You know, th- as I've been watching that girl, I keep on going, oh, I'm that girl. Uh, I, I, and she's flawed and funny, but still positive. Right. And imagine if you were 12, if you saw that when you were 12, you would think to yourself, oh, I, I want to do that. I want to have my own apartment. You know, that's. What many, many grown women have said to me, when I watched you when I was like 12 or nine or something like that, I just wanted to be you. I just wanted to move to New York and have bangs and long hair and my own apartment, you know. And then for grown women, I mean, I I received mail from grandmothers who would say, don't marry Donald. You're too young. You know, they really they really took her personally. They you know, you don't have to marry Don. You've got plenty of time for marriage. <laughs> and you're like, I know. <laughs> I, uh, and then when we didn't have a wedding, uh, I got a lot of mail from women saying, thanks for not copping out. That was, you know, they were great. They were very happy because they'd heard me, uh, 
you know, in interviews and stuff saying how, no, there would not be a wedding. Wow. It's amazing how long we've had these needs unfulfilled and the baby steps we've had to take to get to where yes. we even are now. You did have a happy ending of your own, though, eventually in real <laughs> life, which is the much right. better place to have it. Um, right. I think you may have one of the most iconic meet cutes of all time. <laughs> Can you talk us through how you met your husband, Phil Donahue? Well, you know, I went on his show. Yes. And uh, I had not really seen him because he wasn't in L.A. at the time. The show was not in L.A. So when I showed up in the green room, my press agent had said, you have to go on the show. It's the hottest show in the Midwest. It's for an hour at 9 a.m. I thought, oh, God, I'm I'm not that interesting at 9 a.m. for an hour. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I, of course, I went on it. But when he walked in the green room, you know, those killer blue eyes and that shock of white hair, I thought it was like a shampoo commercial. You know, just kind of everything went in slow motion. And he and he said he looked at me and thought I was just an impure thought. Um, but that's the way men and women look at each other. I see a shampoo commercial and he sees an impure thought. Uh, but you got to start off with impure thoughts. Let's face it. Hey, that's such an Irish Catholic way of putting it, though. <laughs> I know he's an Irish Catholic boy. That's for sure. And so we started dating and that was just it. Whatever infatuation we felt during the show, uh, which was kind of, you know, amazing because I had been on a million talk shows by that time. I, mm. I was past that girl. I'd quit that girl six years before. So I'd been on, you know, Johnny Carson, and Merv Griffin and all of them. I mean, I never had a crush on any of them. And all of a sudden I find myself giggling and acting like an idiot. Uh, and then when he asked me out to dinner, that had never happened either. Nobody had ever asked me out to dinner after an interview. It was just all very kind of kismet-like, you know? It's just, it had its own little life and and off we went. You famously said at the end of that interview, you're such a kind man and you're wonderful and you like women and you, oh, you're so cute. You like cup your hands around his arm and you lean in. And I see that attraction that you were just talking about. What did he do or say that made you know in such a short time that was true? Well, the way he interviewed me, the kindness and the respect with which he interviewed me Mm. and the way he dealt with the audience. You know, there are all these women. There's like 300 women in his audience. And he treated them all with such respect and gave them all the time in the world to ask their question. And uh, he encouraged them, you know, between the breaks to, you know, ask Marla whatever you want to know. You know, we're excited to have her here. So they were very, he was very good about that. Then he had people on the telephone calling in. He just, he was like a juggling act. You know, he just... He was so facile and so confident. Confidence is so sexy, isn't it? I was very turned on by, by his confidence, his respect, and he, he was funny. And he said to me, well, how did a woman like you never get married? I said, oh, no, I never, everyone, I'm never getting married. And uh, he said, well, how do you feel when you don't have a man in your life? I said, oh, I'm miserable. And he laughed. He thought that, you know, it was a joke, obviously. <laughs> and he laughed. And he just got a big kick out of what I had to say. And, uh, you know, I, w- I was thinking as I was looking at him, thinking, wow, boy, he must have a, like a really great woman in his life. You know, a guy like this, 
who could have anybody. I bet he has a really great woman. You know, when he asked me out to dinner, I was shocked because I thought for sure he was, you know, married and off somewhere, but he was divorced and he had four sons who lived with him and his one daughter lived with his ex-wife. So he was completely available. He was dating, of course. I had broken up with a guy maybe about six months before, about a four-year relationship that I uh, left. Uh, and he'd left his marriage. They'd left their marriage. And so we were both available. You know, that timing is everything. Yeah. If he'd yeah. been married or if I'd been engaged or living with someone, that wouldn't have happened either. If he'd asked me out, I would have had to say, no, I really can't. I'm living with someone or, you know what I mean? So uh, timing is another thing. It isn't just meeting cute. It's meeting cute at the right time. Mm. Or it just it dissolves. That's such a wonderful point. Um, you were being interviewed by Joan Rivers and she commented about how she got married late and then added at the age of 26. And it was about the only part of the interview that wasn't a punchline. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so curious. Do you think your marriage to Phil would have been as successful as it is if you had met in your 20s, like you're saying? I, don't, I couldn't have been married in my 20s. I mean, it wasn't that I just didn't want to be married. I, I, I couldn't be married in my 20s. You know, my niece, Dion, always says, oh, Auntie Marlowe, I wish you were my mother. You know how kids always say that because they're, they're generous, anti-mame type of aunt, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I said to her, honey, if I had been your mother, you would have been a serial killer. <laughs> I wouldn't have been there for you. No. Yeah. I, you know, I was trying to say that I was ambitious. I was... I was living in London. I was doing a play. I was working really hard. I was really focused on what I wanted at the time, which was a career. So I, I took children and family very seriously. And I just, you know, I'm a Catholic girl. So I didn't think I could be successful as a wife and mother and be as ambitious as I was. And I'm glad that the world has changed and made it easier for women to have it all. They can't have it all at the same time, but they can have it all in steps. I came from the generation of women who gave up everything to be wives and mothers. And so I was coming from that, seeing my mother having given up her singing career to become a wife and mother. So I knew I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be my father. I wanted to have my eyes dancing and working and you know being in front of an audience. That's what I wanted. So I, I couldn't, I wouldn't have been married in, in my 20s. If I had met Phil in my 20s, I'm sure it, 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 I would have thought it was really cute, but I would have kept going. I mean, they were really cute men in Hollywood, you know, and I kept going. Do you remember your wedding? Every second of it. It was just, it was heaven. Well, first of all, it was only 35 people. My mom and dad and my sister and brother and their children. Phil's five children, his mother uh, his father had passed away, his aunt, and I think my an aunt and uncle of mine, my best girlfriend and his best boyfriend and their spouses. And that was it. 35 people in my parents' living room. Because my, because my husband had been married before, we couldn't get married in church. So we got married uh, in, the, in my parents' living room. Uh, we could have had, there were, you know, people had talked to us about having our marriage annulled. But I said, I, I can't say to Phil's children, 
your parents' marriage never existed. That's insane. You know, it's just, it makes no sense. Yeah. So we, we, we've done fine without it. I mean, I, I know my parents would have preferred a church wedding, but my sister and brother got married in church and they were both divorced. So <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean a successful union. Yeah, clearly a church is not necessarily the secret, but <laughs> I'm curious if you know what is. Well, you know, that's a complicated uh, answer because it actually takes a different look every decade, maybe. The marriage we had in our first 10 years is not the marriage we have now. In the marriage in our first 10 years, we were both we are both type A personalities. We're both very bossy and we're both used to running our shows, right? So in the first 10 years of our marriage, I felt we were constantly positioning, you know, for he's not going to take advantage of me. She's not going to take advantage of me. You know, we were kind of juggling uh, positioning, you know, power struggle. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then after a while, you trust the person enough. You know, he's not going to try to dominate me. She's not going to try to bully me. You know, each of us had that fear. I mean, we could talk about it later. Not at the time, we didn't really realize it. So that decade's nothing like this decade. And each decade, you, you grow in a different way. You learn something new. I thought I knew everything about Phil. I don't. I think I do. Sometimes I know exactly how he's going to react to something that's about to happen. And he doesn't react that way. He reacts in a whole other way that I had never even imagined. Can you give me an example? Uh, well, I mean, even through the pandemic, we were all, all of a sudden, you know, trapped in our apartment, afraid to go out uh, at our age. And um, uh, he's always kind of, uh, he's a laid back guy and I'm an impulsive person. That's our differences. And, and he always kind of would say to me, why don't you settle down, you know, Sit down for five minutes. Where are you rushing to all the time? And I never know how to answer that. He, he would just, you know, he would kind of like complain about my multitasking. And then during the pandemic one day, he said to me, you know, you're really like a water bug. I've never seen anybody like you before up close. He said, you go to the right, you go to the left, you go this way, you go that way. Blah, blah, blah. And by the end of the day, you've actually made something happen. I'm really impressed with your work ethic. I said, now, after all these years, you're impressed with my work ethic? <laughs> he said, well, I didn't get it before. Before you just seemed like a bundle of energy. I didn't realize that you were putting together something always. So that I mean that was an unusual thing for him to see and, and to say and for him to get it. So I think during the pandemic, after all these years, we've learned something new about each other. What a gift that must be. <laughs> so you have a podcast called Double Date, which I'm obsessed with, um, uh. where you interview celebrity couples that have been together for years with Phil. Why did you want to start a podcast specifically about relationships? I mean, you could talk about anything, acting or feminism, politics, healthcare. Why love? Well, you know, when we were celebrating our 39th wedding anniversary, we knew that we were coming up to the big 40, which was, you know, great. 
So we were saying, well, what should we do for our 40th anniversary? Should we take a cruise? Should we take all the family somewhere? Should we have a big blowout of a party? And I said, you know, everybody's always asking us, what's the secret sauce to our marriage? Why don't we interview a whole lot of couples that have been married a long time? Alan Alda has been married 60 years. Billy Crystal and Janice have been married 50 years. All these people we know that have married 50 years, 40 years, 30 years, 25 years. And find out, you know, if we ask a lot of them, maybe we'll get a good look at what makes a marriage last. So the first thing he said was, well, I'm not talking about our marriage. And I said, uh, OK, don't. You know, one thing you learn when you've been married a long time is don't argue about stuff. It's OK, fine. <laughs> and then it'll come out the way it comes out. Right. And so, uh, of course, once we started talking to these people, it would come up. Wait, wait, wait. How would it come up? Uh, uh, Kelly Ripper's husband talked about his jealousy. So Phil talked about his jealousy. You know, I didn't say tell your jealousy, but it was there. And so and so that was our book called What Makes a Marriage Last. And after we did the book, people came to us and said, would you do a podcast about this? And we said, OK, that could be fun. So we we are, you know, maybe it will evolve into something else. But for now, it's we're really enjoying it. I'm glad you are. Oh, I really am. Especially Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen. And what about John McEnroe and his wife, Patty? Oh. Wasn't that great? Viola Davis and Julius Tenen. Oh, they're like freaking fracked. I know. Such an example of why two people can be stronger together. And either the same-sex marriage, Neil and David, Neil Patrick Harris. I mean, their marriage is great. And he described the... Uh, the wave of sexuality, I thought so beautifully, um, better than anybody else did. So you're talking to all these amazing people and you yourself have this incredible perspective on love. In these conversations, what has come up that surprised you? It may sound simple-minded, but the marriages that last really last because both people want it equally. Mm. You know, in relationships, there's, you can see that one person is really carrying the relationship and the other person is just sort of along for the ride. One person's making it all work. And often it's the woman. But in these marriages uh, that lasted a long time, none of them looked for the escape route. That may sound simple, but that's huge. Because people leave when somebody leaves a marriage, it isn't just because they've got, they fancy somebody else. They don't want to deal with whatever it is. They don't want to deal with the issues they have to deal with, whether it's losing money or somebody's lost a job or somebody's retired or somebody's sick or there's been an infidelity. I mean, there's a million things that can go wrong and threaten a marriage. You either stay and say, this is it. This is what I want. Or you look for the escape for the exit sign. So Kira Sedgwick said, when you get married, there can be no plan B. That's it. I remember Richard Burton once was asked by David Frost a hundred years ago, what is your definition of love? Well, I was in bed watching this. I leaned over. I couldn't wait to hear what Richard Burton, this great womanizer, lover man was going to say about what is the definition of love? And he thought a moment and he said, tolerance. And I was shocked. I wanted a much sexier answer than that. But he said, tolerance. And, and he said, uh, David Frost said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you love your child completely. If your child murders somebody, you hate that act. 
but you don't stop loving your child. You try to figure out how you help your child through that. And that is true. You know, like Jamie Lee Curtis was had drug addiction. I mean, those, those are big things. Her husband didn't know she was drug addicted. It took a while. But those are big things. I mean, there are people who leave their spouses because they have a drug addiction. You know, there are people who leave their spouses because they're too angry now that they're retired or out of a job or, you know, you've lost your money, you've lost your house, your identity was in that. You know, you can't, you know, be kind to each other. You can't stick it out with each other. And that's, that's what happens. And maybe it just wasn't meant to be. I don't know. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, you were even talking about earlier how important it is to see flawed women, but honestly, just flawed characters in general for that exact answer. The flaws exist always, not just at the climax before we have our happy ending. And I'm curious how you think we're doing in terms of entertainment now with how we display romantic love. Well, there hasn't been much. I mean, this was the worst year of movies I've ever seen. It was so depressing. Alzheimer's and nomad land and killings and oh goodness. Uh, It's been a while since we've had a nice Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan romantic comedy, you know? Uh, So I don't, I don't know that we know how to portray it right now. I think that we're in a, you know, we, we went through a, terrible last four or five years of disrespect for women Mm. you know the whole me too movement where the it all came out all the disrespect that's that's been there and the bullying and the abuse that's been there and then uh people talking about grabbing women's privates and things like that so it's kind of put men and women at a mistrust level you know do you respect or do you not respect? Can I trust you to respect? I mean, there's a lot of that uh, that I'm hearing from younger women. So, and, and a suspicion, a suspicion. And as one man said to me, not just suspicion, but contempt. And there's resentment. You know, Sanjay Gupta's wife, Rebecca, uh, who we interviewed, is um, you know, a divorce lawyer. And we asked her, well, what did you learn in the divorce courts? And she said, well, the biggest cause of divorce is resentment. People resent the other one for having to give something up, for not being encouraged to get what they want, for being uh, thwarted in some way. There's a resentment that you don't recognize how much I've done. You don't recognize and appreciate what I've given to this marriage and relationship and so forth. And she said, resentment is the hardest thing to get over. You can get over infidelity quicker than you can get over resentment. Resentment comes after it's boiled. You don't resent somebody in one afternoon. Resentment is something that takes a while to work on you until finally you say, you know, I'm in a place where I should not be. Do you think there's an antidote to that? To resentment? Yes. Yeah. The only antidote to it is calling it by its rightful name, saying, look, I work all day cooking and cleaning and taking care of the children. And I don't feel that you see that I have no time for my own, myself. I don't, I don't even get to be with my girlfriends. I'm just like a slave here. And the husband can say, I work 
my fingers to the bone. I travel all over the country, you know, on this job and I miss out on the kids ball games or whatever it is. And I don't feel that you empathize with the fact that I'm how much I'm giving up in order to put food on the table. So you've got two people who are giving and giving and giving, but nobody's appreciating them. And that's where gratitude comes in. Mm. Gratitude is the biggest gift you can give people you love. You know, let them know that you're really grateful for what they give you. And I think gratitude is something personal too. I feel a lot of gratitude for the fact that Phil and I have a very good marriage, that I'm healthy, he's healthy, that we still love each other. We live in a beautiful house. You know, we have a lot to be grateful for. And you have to remember that. Otherwise, you know, you always want something else. And it's fine to, to want more and to aspire. But don't forget to look at what you've got and be grateful for that, too. Marlo, I'm grateful for you. <laughs> <laughs> the wisdom you're dropping. We have some audience questions. Would you mind taking them? No, I'd love to. Amazing. Okay. So Jenny from Rhode Island wants to know who are the women you wanted to emulate when you were young? Oh, I wanted to be Eleanor Roosevelt and Catherine Hepburn. Those are my two idols, Eleanor Roosevelt and Catherine Hepburn. Those are mine too. And honestly, after this interview, Marlo Thomas. <laughs> um, Gail from Irvine, which is my mom, I'll be honest, would like to know <laughs> your father, Danny Thomas, is one of the most well-known actors and philanthropists. What drove your family's passion to create St. Jude's? Well, it was my father's passion. My father uh, grew up in a poor neighborhood where children, his little friends, died of things like appendicitis and in influenza that are preventable because they never could see a doctor because they didn't have any money. Uh, and my grandmother had 10 babies, no doctor, just hot water and her sister. So he grew up with a front row seat of the inequity of healthcare in this country. So he wanted to do something to help children that were hopelessly ill. And so that's why he created St. Jude where nobody would ever, ever pay for anything and no child would be turned away for race or religion. And that's what he wanted is that everybody got the same first-class care, whether their family had money or didn't have money. Steph from Brooklyn would like to know, you played Rachel's mom on Friends, so you definitely have the inside scoop. Were Ross and Rachel on a break? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. And Rob from Santa Fe would like to know what makes you laugh? Oh, I'm a really good laugher. Just about anything. You know, well, first of all, I love people falling down. You know, I'm a, a Three Stooges fan. Um, I, I love I love comedy. I go to comedy clubs uh, a lot. Not right now because of the pandemic. But my, my a lot of my friends and I uh, that are also in comedy. We go to comedy clubs and see the new comics. And I, I'm, I'm absolutely worship Jerry Seinfeld. I think he's the greatest comedian. And um, we go to see him at the Beacon Theater, uh, wherever he appears. And what's great about Jerry Seinfeld is that he doesn't talk dirty. Mm. And my dad used to say, if you have to say a four-letter word to get a laugh, you're not a comedian. And Jerry Seinfeld doesn't say a dirty word to get a laugh. He's got a very clean show, like my dad did. But he's hilarious. I mean, I double over laughing at him. You, and you play any of his specials on television. Oh, I mean, Seinfeld was hilarious. But when he's in one doing his act, there's nobody better than he is. 
Webb from Vero Beach would like to know what's your favorite story about love, real or fiction? Well, most of the favorite stories of love are, you know, ones that didn't make it, you know, like <laughs> Romeo and Juliet or, you know, they're all those beautiful love stories. I think the better love stories are the ones that the couples that I know, like Arlene and Alan Alda or Janice and Billy Crystal or President Carter and Rosalind, those are real living marriages. They really love each other. They're really concerned with each other. They know how to fight. They know how to make up. They know how to support each other. And they, and they live their lives together. You know, uh, what's her name? Uh, Viola Davis said, when you get married, your happiness now has to be uh, entwined with your spouse's happiness. Everything has to come under the umbrella of your marriage. You can't have your own little happiness over here somewhere. Bring it all under one umbrella. And I think, I think that's right. I think that that's what makes it juicier, really, and, you know, and richer. Because whatever happiness you're having, you're sharing you know, with somebody who loves you and wants you to do well. Okay, you've reached the lightning round. <laughs> do you thrive when you're in chaos or in control? creativity comes out of chaos. What was your favorite age or period of your life? I think my 30s. Mm -hmm. I think I, I met Phil when I was 37. And I had done a lot of very good work at that point. And, and, and I was feeling very confident in my work. So that I, I think I was able to relax a little bit and allow love in. I don't think I was able to receive it before. Seriously. I mean, I had boyfriends and I lived with someone, but I wasn't really opening my heart to its impact. But with Phil, uh, I think some of my fists came down. You know what I mean? Mm. I was fighting the world and then they kind of opened up. So that would be my favorite time because it was a real transition when you transform yourself from one piece of yourself to the other. What are your biggest fears that come up around love? Huh. Well, I, I, I do worry sometimes if I'm giving, uh, taking enough time to give attention to, to my husband because I'm so busy and so engaged in so many things that I want to be sure that, that I don't allow, you know, love not to be nurtured because it's, just, it's a living thing, love. It isn't like you get married and you love each other and that's, that. okay, well, good, that's done. It's not. It's like a plant. It needs food. It needs water. It needs care. It needs time. There really are three elements in a marriage. is the husband, the wife, and the marriage itself. And each, each of these elements have to be, must be tended to. What one word describes love to you? Safety. And finally, what is the greatest act of love you've ever witnessed? Oh, my. Greatest act of love I've ever witnessed. Well, probably my father's love of taking care of children. That's the most unselfish, devoted dedication that I've ever seen anybody do he just he just turned himself inside out 
to create this hospital, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and his devotion to these children. I mean, when we were little, the phone would ring and my dad would take a call from St. Jude and he would come back to the dinner table with tears in his eyes because some little boy named David wasn't going to make it or some little girl named Amy was going to be able to play in her soccer game. And we thought, who are these children? Who are these people that he's so connected with? He completely, as, as, and he was a loving father to us, had completely given his heart to these children and, and wanted them to get well. And when I would watch him with them, I couldn't believe it. You know, he just gave himself. It was quite extraordinary. Marlo Thomas, I think you are also quite extraordinary. <laughs> I'm so grateful for your time and your heart and your head. I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude. Oh, thank you. Thank you, sweet. Thank you. Well, your mom did a very good job with you, didn't she? Oh, my gosh. You just made her <laughs> life. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, she deserves it. Well, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Oh, good. Enjoy your spirit. You're, you have a wonderful spirit. Always hang on to that. I'm very aware of that with myself. But I'm not going to let anything uh, change my spirit or break my spirit. Well, be good. Have a happy wedding or whatever you're planning. And thanks. I've enjoyed myself. Thank you, Marlo. Bye-bye, sweetie. Oh, you guys. There are no words. Everyone's wrong. Meet your heroes. Marlo Thomas, thank you so much. Oh, unfortunately, now I'm going to have to grow out my bangs and wear black tights everywhere. Oh, Marlo and I talked about That Girl, The Dick Van Dyke Show, Roseanne, Mary Tyler Moore, Kate and Allie, Cagney and Lacey, Murphy Brown, I Love Lucy, Donna Reed, and Father Knows Best. If you guys want to hear more of Marlo, make sure to check out that podcast of hers, Double Date. And if you want to hear more from Meet Cute, make sure to tune in to 8 Love Super, their new superhero rom-com series, available wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, come on over to what she's having and make sure to rate and review and subscribe. And visit us on Instagram at Meet Cute or on Twitter at Listen Meet Cute. Send us your questions. Send us your stories. Send us your love. Oh, I'm going to go listen to this over and over again so I can prove to myself it really happened. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm your host, Ashley Eskew, and... I'll have what she's having.